All right, everyone, if you can open up your Bibles and turn with me back to Genesis chapter 45, Genesis chapter 45, and the title of today's Bible study is, It Is Enough. It is enough. So as we normally do, please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 45, and we're going to start in verse 9 and read to the rest of the chapter. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father and all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to my brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father revived. Israel said, it is enough. 
Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Please be seated. This month, my family and I will be, in a sense, celebrating the fourth anniversary of the transfer, the embryo transfer of our son, Luke. So four years ago, our whole family, Janice, myself, our three kids, we had prayed, we'd been praying for a long time. We boarded a plane to Tennessee, and it was on a Monday, December, or January 22nd, that we were in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Luke was transferred to the womb of, of my wife, Janice. We had done this once before, and to our disappointment, that transfer was not successful. And so we were praying that maybe the second time, everything will work out for its best. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, we did the first pregnancy test. It was positive. Two days later, the results were even better. And then six weeks later, we all crowded around a small exam room, and the ultrasound probe was put on Janice's uh, abdomen, and we saw one heartbeat. That whole year was a year of anticipation. We were waiting week by week. We didn't know the exact date, but we knew and we were anticipating the moment when we would get to see our, our son. Joseph was waiting for this moment. He had waited for years. He had been in, in Egypt for more than 20 years. He had been a slave, a prisoner, but he had ascended. God had lifted him up to be the ruler of Egypt. And he had ruled over Egypt for nine years. And you would imagine he had every privilege to be able to travel. He could have easily traveled and said, you know, I wanted to come back and show myself to my father, to my brothers. But he couldn't. He couldn't because there would be no successful family reunion without restoration and reconciliation. And we had studied last week, the first eight verses of this chapter, that that moment finally came. That the brothers in a private moment with Joseph, that Joseph revealed himself and extended and offered forgiveness to his brothers. And once that had occurred, that what happens for the rest of the chapter is Joseph setting into motion the plan to reunite with his family, including his father, Jacob. So if you still have your Bibles, back to Genesis chapter 45, we start in verse nine. And after this happens, Joseph immediately gives three commands to his brothers. And the first command is the first word in verse nine, hurry. And you can imagine, Joseph had waited this long. He had been patient. He, he knew that there was going to be the time of great blessing and plenty. And by divine dream, 
he had orchestrated the preparation for the seven years of famine. And you remember back in Genesis chapter 42, during the second year of the famine, he sees his brothers come to Egypt. He knew it was just a matter of time. He knew that the famine had extended to the promised land. And so he probably waited, like like the father waiting for his prodigal son. And then the brothers came. But he still had to remain patient. You remember, he, he played this game where he disguises himself as a stranger. And why did he do this? He did this as a plan to, in a sense, lure his brothers to bring Benjamin to Egypt. Because it required Benjamin to come to Egypt for Joseph to test the readiness of his brother's condition to repent and to be restored. And so Joseph tells the brothers, you can't come back again for more food unless you bring Benjamin. And you remembered several months had passed. Joseph's father, Jacob, out of pure desperation and based on the persuasion of Judah, who told his father, I will be surety for Benjamin. Jacob relented. Benjamin is brought to Egypt. And Joseph, then, when he sees Benjamin, he brings all his brothers. Simeon is released from prison, and he lavishes his brothers with kindness, undeserved kindness. He washed their feet. He set up this banquet luncheon, all for his brothers. And the brothers were so elated that they were intoxicated as they were enjoying that feast. And Joseph then designed one final test. He sends his brothers on his way, and he plants his silver cup in the brothers' sacks. And of course, within a few hours, the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and Benjamin was apprehended to be brought back to Egypt. But instead of abandoning Joseph, like they had done 20, 22 years ago, they did not abandon Benjamin. They passed the test. They all hurried, they gathered their belongings, they returned to Egypt, and Judah, with his passionate plea, offered himself to be sacrificed, to be a substitute, to be surety for Benjamin. Joseph could not control himself. He breaks down. He offers, he extends forgiveness. And he tells his brothers, all of this is is the hand of God. Now the moment has arrived. And so, so Joseph quickly gives three commands to his brothers. The first command is hurry. Make haste, act quickly, be swift. There is no time for delay. The second two commands, go up to my father and say to him, that is, deliver this message directly from me. All the words that I tell you, tell them to my father. And what is this message that Joseph is wanting to have relayed to his father one command. 
Look again at verse 9. Joseph says, To tell my father, come down to me. You see, Joseph was convinced that this is God's plan. It is God's sovereign plan for his family to relocate to Egypt. And this is a big deal. His father, Jacob, through his entire life, imperfect as he was, he clung firmly, tightly, to the covenantal promises that God had given to his grandfather, Abraham. He knew that God had promised his grandfather that he will have many descendants, he will give them a land, and all the nations will be blessed through him and his seed. One main component of this promise is the land. Jacob was not about to leave the land for a trivial reason. He is not like his grandfather Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, you remembered, once there was a famine, the first thing that Abraham does is he ditches the, the land of Canaan and he goes to Egypt. But not Jacob. Jacob, I'm sure, had committed that he was going to stay and he was going to die in Canaan. So Joseph tells his brothers, you must deliver this message. Tell my father, come down to me. And Joseph gives his brothers four reasons, four arguments for them to use to persuade their father. First reason, again in verse 9, he wants his brothers to tell their father, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Tell my father, down in verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. That word honor in verse 13, even though sometimes it refers to wealth or riches, here has the meaning of importance, reputation. I am in the highest position of importance here in Egypt. So brothers, tell dad, I have been exalted to a high position. But it's not just that I am in a high position. He says in verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Not only am I in a position of power and importance in Egypt, but I am still under the absolute sovereign position that's occupied by God. God is sovereign over all of this, and God has exalted me to this high position. So the first argument, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Reason number two, he says, there are yet five years of famine to come. Joseph knew that the primary reason Benjamin was in their midst was their father must have been desperate. So Joseph tells his brothers, go back and tell dad, this famine is not yet over. There are five more years. If you stay in Canaan, all of our livestock will perish, and you and our entire household may likely 
perish. Reason number three, Joseph says in verse 11, I will provide for you so you don't come to poverty. So Joseph is telling his brothers, tell dad, there is hope. Our family does not need to suffer financial ruin. You understand that they were shepherds. For them, if they lost all their livestock, that's it. There's nothing that remains. I was told that a beekeeper, the most important part of being a beekeeper are your bees. (laughs) If you lose your bees, you lose everything. I will provide for you. You don't need to come to poverty. Come to Egypt. Accept the provision that only I can provide by God's empowerment so that you can be rescued, so that you can be saved. And the fourth reason, verse 12, Joseph tells his brothers in verse 12, and now your eyes see. And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. What's Joseph saying here? Joseph is saying, you are the 11 eyewitnesses to all of this. You're not just one person. You're not even just two people. You are 11. 11 eyewitnesses. We know that in general, the testimony of just one person isn't enough. You need to have the testimony of at least two people. But Joseph is telling his brothers, you don't just have the testimony of one person, two people, but you have the testimony of 11. And our father knows that 10 of you will not be easily trusted. You had lied, you had deceived our father for all these years but not Benjamin. So even if our father doesn't believe 10 of you, highlight Benjamin. Benjamin is witness of this too. So Joseph's direction here, hurry, come down to me now so that our family can be saved. So in this first section, we see Joseph's direction. Now let's highlight and take a closer look at Joseph's satisfaction in verse 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. I'm going to just read it again. Then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. You see here in verse 14 that Joseph displays outpouring of emotion, fondness to Benjamin. And we see that Benjamin, he reciprocates. They both weep and they both make mutual contact on each other's neck. This imagery of weeping and basically putting yourself on another person's neck, this image is only used three times in all of scripture. And all three times are in the book of Genesis. The first time, if you recall, 
is in Genesis chapter 33, when Jacob comes back to meet Esau, and he brings all the gifts right, in, in multiple ways. And when he finally meets Esau, and they are reconciled, the Bible describes that they fell and wept on each other's neck. The second image is here, where we see Joseph and Benjamin. And the third time will occur in chapter 46, when Joseph finally meets his father. But note the contrast here between Joseph and Benjamin and Joseph and his 10 other brothers. Verse 15, and Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. I think it's interesting. There isn't any description of his brothers weeping, pouring over Joseph. The description here is, you know, is yeah, it's just by one party. But I do think, even though it might seem cold that the narrator, the author here, writes that his brothers talked with him, I think it is significant. Rewind back your memories to Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, you remember that Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph, his, his one son of his beloved Rachel, gives him his multicolored coat, and Joseph in that chapter is going to tell of his two dreams, that everyone's going to bow down to him. And it says in Genesis chapter 37, verse 4, referring to Joseph's brothers, Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The picture in Genesis 37 is that they hated Joseph so much, they could not speak even to Joseph. And now here we see the inspired word of God says that his brothers talked with him. So there is a restoration. There is communication. There is fellowship. But the fellowship is not as sweet as it could have been. And why is that? Well, I think it's because that Joseph's brothers did not fully trust and embrace Joseph's gift of forgiveness. Later on, when their father, Jacob, dies, and they bury them, or they bury him, you remember what the brothers did? The brothers became afraid. It says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That doubt did not magically appear in Genesis 50. That doubt started here in chapter 45. They just didn't believe. 
I remember the first time I was at the fast food chain Chick-fil-A. It was amazing. <laughs> but one of the things that happened is I, we had ordered, I don't remember who exactly I was with, but I sat down, I was enjoying my chicken sandwich, and I had ordered a soda, but because of my frugality, I ordered a small soda. And sure enough, I was eating my waffle fries, the chicken sandwich, and within moments, I'd finished my small soda. My, my friend said to me, you know, they're, they're free refills. And I was like, no. It can't be. <laughs> that would be too good to be true. And because I did not believe him, I finished my sandwich, my waffle fries, with a parched mouth, <laughs> leaving the restaurant thirsty because, one, I didn't want to spend more money to buy a second soda, and two, I didn't believe my friend that Chick-fil-A had free refills. Joseph's brothers were given forgiveness, and the forgiveness was genuine. You see Joseph pouring out in, in emotion, with weeping. And these aren't tears of sadness. These are tears of joy. And yet, his brothers couldn't fully believe and embrace that their, son, their, their brother could forgive them unconditionally. Now, I should also note that when you read verse 14 and 15, what should impact you is the satisfaction that Joseph had with his forgiveness. We had studied last week that forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is hard. But the truth of the matter is, when you and I forgive, it is of the sweetest aroma that we could experience. And the converse is equally true. Unwillingness to forgive will lead to bitterness, grief, misery. The cost of forgiveness may be great, but the consequences of unforgiveness are fatal. So we see here first that Joseph's forgiveness was genuine, and it gave him great satisfaction but at the same time, we see that Joseph's brothers did not fully delight in Joseph's forgiveness. And my question to all of us in this room today is, do you delight in God's forgiveness? I know sometimes we may make a big mistake. What to you might be a heinous sin irreparable, undoable, with permanent consequences, do you fully delight in God's forgiveness? You know, God said that as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He says later in the New Testament, there is now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we see Joseph's direction. Hurry, come down now. I will provide for you. We see Joseph's satisfaction, the sweetest aroma that can be experienced by forgiving. Third, let's look at Pharaoh's injunction. Pharaoh's injunction. And we see this beginning in verse 16. It reads, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. It gives a similar response that when Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's divine dreams and came up with a plan, you you need to appoint someone that's going to be able to gather all this food so that we can survive in the seven years of famine. The text says that it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. We see the same imagery here. So Joseph had wailed so loudly that everyone in his household heard. I'm sure someone then went over to Pharaoh's house and said, hey, Pharaoh, wouldn't believe what is happening. Joseph's family, Joseph's brothers are here. And when that news came to Pharaoh, it pleased Pharaoh and his house. This is Pharaoh who doesn't have to worry about anything because he's got Joseph in charge of doing everything. Pharaoh now here issues commands. And he issues his commands beginning in verse 17. Two verbs. Verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, verb number one, say to my brothers. And verb number two, do this, both in the imperative. What does he say? Send your brothers back to Canaan to retrieve your entire family. And he further says, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. We didn't read it a second time, but Joseph had told his brothers when he had commanded his brothers to go get father to come here. He specifically mentions the land of Goshen. And so Pharaoh here is saying and repeating the second time this idea I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. I think what Pharaoh had in mind is Goshen. Now, a little bit of Egyptian geography. In Egypt, the north part of Egypt that abuds into the Mediterranean Sea is where the Nile River flows out to. So the Nile River flows from south to north. And even though there is this severe famine, one could not imagine that the Nile River dried up. Most other rivers would dry up. You know, we have a drought here in California, here in the United States. There are some smaller tributaries that will dry out. But you and I can't imagine in the United States the the Mississippi River drying out. The Nile River likely did not dry out year two or for the remainder of this severe famine. And so the land that is a part of the delta of the Nile River is probably the only area of land that would still produce anything. And Goshen is just east of the center 
of the delta of the Nile River. It is prime property. It is the most valuable part of the country. And during the Near Ancient East, the uh, ancient Near East, the land is probably the most important resource that a country or a people would have. And so Pharaoh is telling Joseph, commanding Joseph, you go tell, you go send back for your family. And he promises, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. He gives two more commands in verse 19. He says, do this. And the second command, take wagons. Take wagons. I don't know what you picture when you read when Pharaoh says, take wagons. Uh, My only imagery is perhaps in the 19th century where there were horse-pulled wagons and carriages, and that's what I had in mind. But that is 100, 200 years ago. 4,000 years ago, during the time of Joseph, there were no wagons, there were no carts in Canaan. They had donkeys, they had pack animals, carts, wagons. It would be the latest technology in the entire society. And few nations, few superpowers would have access to carts and wagons. Perhaps the only nearby superpower that would have it was Egypt and the only person who actually possessed wagons was Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is telling Joseph, you take wagons and bring them to your father. Pharaoh withheld nothing. It amazes me when I read this, how God sovereignly works over leaders of nations. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 21, it reads, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. All the leaders, past, present, and future, are all under the control of the hand of God including Pharaoh here in Middle Kingdom, 12th Dynasty, Egypt. God was also in control of the king of Persia during the time of Esther. There are a lot of parallels between our story here and the story of Esther. You remember the story of Esther. Israel had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. The Medo-Persians came and overtook Babylon, and through an edict, the Jews were allowed to return and to go back to the promised land, to go back to Canaan. And many of the Jews went back to Canaan, but not all. There were some Jews that apparently liked where they lived, and they didn't want to pack up their bags and go back to Canaan. And so they settled, and so there were many Jews that scattered about They were dispersed in the Persian Empire. And this empire went from basically, I think, 
India, to Ethiopia, to Southern Europe. This was a huge, powerful empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so King Darius had died. There was a new king, King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus, he was disenchanted with Queen Vashti, has a beauty pageant to have all these young women parade for him to choose who will be the new queen. And in God's providence, Esther, a Jew by secret, was chosen to be queen. And then the bad guy in the story, Haman, he was one of the rising princes in the kingdom. And wherever he went, everyone would bow down to him except one person, Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, who had taken care of Esther and had even revealed a plot of assassination of the Persian king. Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. And Haman was so infuriated. What did Haman do? He was able to entice the Persian king to give him the power to kill every single Jew in all of the Persian empire by the 13th day of the 12th month of that year. And when that law was written, it could not be reversed. And so literally in a matter of months, every single Jew in the Persian Empire, including all the Jews that had returned to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temples, the plan would be for all of them to be eradicated. And then what happens? The king decides to have someone read to him a bit of law and history that occurred in Persia. And so this person reads, and the king was reminded that there was a man who had discovered and revealed the plot of his assassination. And because of that, his life was spared. And the king said to the servant, how did I reward this man? And the servant said, you did it. No reward had been given. And so the Persian king decides, I have got to honor this man. Turn with me to Esther chapter 6. So we pick up the story in Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Haman hated Mordecai so much, he wanted Mordecai killed, and he wanted every single Jew to be killed because Mordecai was a Jew. He had even built this high, I guess, galley to hang Mordecai, and he was getting ready to tell the king to give him permission to kill Mordecai. And so Esther chapter 6, verse 6, let me just read. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman is saying, 
The king loves me. I am his favorite prince. The king must be talking about me. And the king is asking Haman, if I were to honor a man, how can I honor him? Look what Haman says, verse 7. Haman said to the king, For the man who delight, whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officers. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And so what does the king say in verse 10? The king tells Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Haman's arch enemy. And the king tells Haman, put on the best robe and you are to pull Haman so that all the city will bow down and honor Mordecai. I don't think that this king was a God-fearer, but like all other kings, the king of Persia was under the providential hand of Almighty God. The same God working in the Persian king, the same God here working in Pharaoh. You might ask one more question. Why did Joseph decide not to go personally himself? If this was so important, if this was so urgent, you wouldn't delegate your most important task to someone, would you? You would do it yourself. Pharaoh would not have refused Joseph if Joseph had wanted to leave Egypt. Pharaoh granted Joseph's request. Later, for Jacob's funeral, they all went to Canaan, a whole entourage. But Joseph understood that sending his brothers would be more persuasive to their father than him going himself because he knew that as Joseph understood the heart of his father. And he knew that as much as Joseph had longed to be reunited, he was waiting for this moment, how much more his father would long to be reunited with him. And so by Joseph staying, remaining in Egypt, it would provide another incentive, another way to motivate his father, so committed to stay in Canaan, to leave Canaan, not just temporarily, but to permanently relocate, relocate his entire family to Egypt. So we see Joseph's direction, his satisfaction, Pharaoh's injunction. Fourthly, let's look at Joseph's provision. Joseph's provision. So back in Genesis chapter 45, verse 21, we see here that Joseph executes Pharaoh's orders, 
perfectly as described. But Joseph goes one step further. Look down in verse 22. It reads, To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned, do you remember what God did? Well, aside from pronouncing punishment, Adam and Eve had tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, right? But what did God do? Someone or something had to die that day. And so God slayed an animal and used the skins of the animal to provide clothing, to provide covering for Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 35, before Jacob brought his family into the promised land, remember, his wife Rachel still had the household idols. They were still heavily influenced by the idolatry in Haran. Jacob told his family in Genesis chapter 35, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes or to change your garments. There is some sort of imagery that we have here that to change your clothes was a way of purification or a way of preparation for the work of the Lord. All of you should also remember when the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack, what did the brothers do? They tore their clothes. They tore their outer garments. And so Joseph, extending even more grace, thoughtfulness, he gives each of his brothers a change of clothes. But look what else he does in verse 22. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 silver and five changes of clothes. Benjamin does not need five changes of outer garments for this two or three day trip back to Canaan. Why would Joseph do this? Remember back in the luncheon, the lunch feast. We told you that during these types of feasts in ancient Egypt, you don't eat family style. Each plate is presented to you, and you are required out of politeness to finish what is given on your plate. The Joseph's brothers were seated in birth order. So one, two, three, four, all the way down to 10, they all received a portion. And when they brought out the plate for Benjamin, it was five times as much food as the other brothers. And here, Joseph does the same thing. Thing. Why is this? I think at least one reason. This is a picture of God's complacent love. Uh, most of you weren't here, but when we had studied Romans chapter 9, 
we were trying to ask the question or answer the question, why did God love and choose Jacob over Esau? And one of the ways we tried to wrestle this question is we brought up Jonathan Edwards. And we said that Jonathan Edwards describes love with two English words, the love of benevolence and the love of complacence. The love of benevolence is the love that you give to others because you want nothing but the best, the good for others. So when you and I extend grace and mercy, when the Leffler family opens up their home for the six-day-old infant, this is a love of benevolence. God loves everyone, all his creation, all creatures, every one of us in this room, every soul in this entire world with a love of benevolence. But God has a second type of love. He has a love of complacence. And this is a love that is motivated by the beauty of the object of love. And the love of complacence is most clearly seen in the love of God the Father to God the Son. God the Father does not love God the Son just because it's a good thing to do, that he's being benevolent. The Father loves the Son with a love of complacence because the beauty of God the Son, the Godness, is so awesome, so infinite. That is complacent love. And God does not give complacent love to everyone. That love is reserved. The unimaginable truth is, if you are united with Christ, you become the recipient of God's complacent love. God loves you with a love of complacence for the sake of the Son. And when the Son is united with you, you inherit God's complacent love. God offered the love of complacence to Jacob, not Esau. And the love of complacence is so much greater than the love of benevolence that the Bible can say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Joseph loved all his brothers with a love of benevolence but he loved Benjamin with a love of complacence. Joseph says at the end of verse 24, interestingly, if you look down verse 24, he tells his brothers before they go, do not quarrel on the way. Now I wanna make a comment on this because the word that is translated quarrel, this verb, has a meaning to be disturbed, to be upset, 
to be worried. One Bible scholar writes, it has mainly to do with emotional states, not with quarrels or arguments. So even though the ESV, New American Standard, NIV, translate this verb, quarrel, I think perhaps a more accurate translation would be what the New English translation uh, uses. Joseph is saying, as you travel, don't be overcome with fear. Joseph is telling his brothers, don't be nervous, don't be anxious, Don't be upset about going back to tell dad to bring everyone to come to Egypt. This is all a part of God's plan. It's kind of like what Jesus had told his disciples before he had left. You remember in John 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you may have tribulation but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Well, let's jump to the final section of this chapter, Jacob's capitulation. Jacob's capitulation. Look at verse 26. So the brothers, obviously, they did what Joseph had asked them to do. They go back to Canaan, and in verse 26, it reads, They, the brothers, told Jacob, the father, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Throughout Jacob's entire life, we saw that Jacob was always quick to receiving bad news. Remember, when the brothers brought Joseph's robe back, tainted with blood, no one said anything to Jacob. Jacob jumped to the conclusion that Joseph must be dead. He must have been mauled by some sort of animal. You remember when the brothers came back from Egypt the first time, All the brothers came back except Simeon. They didn't have to say anything to Jacob. When Jacob saw that Simeon was not there, his immediate conclusion was that Simeon must be dead, especially if you come back and you didn't even pay for the food. And so now you have 11 eyewitnesses. They come Jacob, and I'm sure they're announcing this news with exuberance. (laughs) Joseph is still alive. And yet, when presented with this news, Jacob does not believe. This is good news. This is the best news. And in fact, there should even be evidence, because remember, The father must have been worried not only about Simeon, but of the welfare of Benjamin. The brothers all come back. Simeon is with them, and Benjamin is back. And yet, Jacob, we read here, his heart became numb. He did not believe. 
But look what happens in verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, stop there. What did Joseph tell the brothers? Joseph told his brothers everything that has happened from Genesis 37 up till now, all is under the providential hand of God. And so if the brothers were telling their father everything that Joseph had told them, they would have included this. Father, this is all God's plan. This may seem illogical, unreasonable, too good to believe, but this is all a work of God. Sometimes the best news cannot be believed. What is the best news we have today? Good news. It's the gospel. Of course, there are going to be those who reject the gospel because of a hardness of heart. They don't want to submit to a God. But there are some who express disbelief because it's too good to be true. It's wishful thinking. It's your crutch. It's not believable. And so Jacob, in his disbelief, he again hears his brothers explaining all of this to him. And I'm sure he would have thought about what had happened in Genesis 37. Again, when we had studied Genesis chapter 37, I tried to emphasize to all of you that Joseph's divine dreams were special revelation. Joseph was not being immature and wanting to garner attention by sharing his dreams to his brothers and then to his father. This was a divine dream. It was special revelation. It was given to him, but was given to him as a steward to share with those around him, his family, his father. And you remember that even though everyone was upset, there was a little phrase in Genesis chapter 37, verse 11, where it says that his father kept these things in his mind. This is the same Jacob that saw the ladder of God in Genesis 28. This is the same Jacob that wrestled with God and was permanently injured at his hip. But for 22 years, it appears that he does not receive any more special revelation. The last special revelation he received was from his son Joseph with these two dreams. This is all Jacob had to work with. And look what happens at the end here. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. So sometimes God uses the externals. He sees carts, wagons. He's probably never seen anything like it before. And when he sees that, God in his Holy Spirit rots in his heart to believe. And the spirit was revived. And then he utters something that I think is mind-blowing. He says in verse 28, it is enough. 
This is one short Hebrew word, rab. And usually this word, it's not even a sentence. So you can translate it enough. And this word usually means numerous, many, great. It gives the imagery of having too much. Back in Genesis chapter 13, you remember when Abraham and Lot, before they split up to go their separate ways, they decided to part ways because it says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 13, for their possessions were so great. Same word. When Jacob had brought all his gifts to Esau, Esau responded to Jacob, I have enough. Again, the same word. There's nothing else you can give me that will add on to what I have. What I have is so great, so numerous, so many. You can't add to give me any more satisfaction. My cup is full. Brothers and sisters, when a person is in this state and realizes and can utter the words, it is enough, this is the ultimate state of Christian contentment. Follow along with me. Jacob in Genesis 42, remember what he said? He said, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. All this has come against me. But he gradually learns. And in, in chapter 43, verse 14, before he sends Benjamin, he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He's at a similar state to Queen Esther because Queen Esther was asked to go to the Persian king and plea with the Persian king to spare the people of Israel. And Esther was saying, I can't go to the king unless I'm called upon. If I go to the king without being called upon, I'm going to die. And so Esther tells Mordecai in Esther chapter 5, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast for three days and three nights, and I and my young women will go. I will go to the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whatever happens, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. But that is the penultimate state of Christian contentment. The ultimate state of Christian contentment is it is enough. You are uttering to God you cannot give me any more. Not only does it not matter whether you heal me or I die, it's even an acknowledgement that I can't ask for anything more. There's nothing that I want. It is enough. And if you are in Christ, if you are united with Christ, you are the recipient of God's love of complacence. And you can say, it is enough. 
you know, through Joseph, God saved Jacob and their entire family. Every Jew was decreed to be killed, but through Esther, God saved the people of Israel. And through Christ Jesus, God has saved each and every one of us, motivated by the love of complacence he has for the Son. And so can we say today, my cup overflows, it is enough. Let's pray. Father, help us through your Holy Spirit to realize our privilege, our inheritance, because of your Son. And help us to daily say, it is enough. Father, we know that we will have tribulation. We know that we will walk at times through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't ignore that this life is painful, but help us today to capitulate like Jacob and say, it is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.